Father, we uh, worship you tonight. Thank you for giving us this day. Thank you for uh, giving us your Son. That in Him we have life, we have peace with you. We uh, get to uh, know you. We get to be your children. We get to know eternity with you because of what Christ has done for us. And we rejoice. And Father, even tonight as we uh, come to look at these two um, theological systems, these two ways of reading Scripture, I pray that you would help us to think well. I pray that you would um, help us to uh, think about the course of the Bible and, uh, and, and examine uh, these topics that we discussed tonight in light of your Word. We pray that you would give us grace as we talk about topics that uh, perhaps are near and dear to our hearts or may even bring in um, other relational uh, and, and his, his history uh, kind of things. I pray that you would give us grace tonight. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as I said, we're going to be covering the topic of dispensationalism and contrasting it with covenant theology. And um, before we get into it, I wanted to uh, make a couple of um, just kind of statements, um, sort of caveats as we enter into this discussion that uh, what, what follows, what we're going to be talking about is a comparison and a critique of theological views, a comparison and a critique of ways people have understood Scripture. Okay, so we're talking about ideas. We're talking about uh, these topics that are obviously very, very important, but we are not intending to critique the people who hold those views. And that's important for us to say, given our context uh, given uh, the history of many of us, that we need to, um, uh, I want to recognize right off the bat that um, we are talking about ideas. And so we are comparing and contrasting ideas one with another. We're not lining up this Christian and that Christian and trying to compare them to see which one uh, is holier, which one is, uh, loves God more, uh, which one is more faithful to Christ. That's not it at all what we're doing. Uh, the discussion is about these concepts, about how we are seeking to understand Scripture. And so it's important for us to keep that in mind because uh, so many of us have a background uh, in dispensationalism or we've learned about it or we've come in contact with it in big ways or small ways and perhaps even uh, uh, people very dear to us um, hold this view of dispensationalism very closely. And we want to be very cautious as we're discussing the ideas not to try and critique a person, uh, not to uh, try and compare uh, our godliness or my godliness or someone else's godliness with anyone else's. That's, that's not even in the topic of discussion. We are seeking to understand uh, how the Bible ought to be read. And that's what we're, that's what we're seeking to do. And so um, I, I want to start with that. Um, and I think that's a very important thing for us to keep in mind. Sometimes it's difficult uh, for us to separate the ideas of a person, perhaps, from that person. Now, obviously, they're connected. They're related. Uh, my ideas are connected with me, but, it, but it, is, uh, it is a perfectly acceptable and important thing for us to examine the ideas that people hold to see whether they are biblical. And so that's what we're trying to do tonight is to talk about these ideas and examine them in light of Scripture and contrast, uh, contrast these two, uh, covenant theology and, dispensational and uh, dispensationalism together. There's a second caveat that, that is important for us to keep in mind, and that is that 
uh, tonight's discussion is not meant to be a contrast between covenant theology and what Parkside has traditionally taught. It's not meant to be a contrast between covenant theology and what Parkside has traditionally taught. Okay? Sometimes that um, can uh, strike a nerve as well because, because as I'm laying out um, what, what the basic tenets of dispensationalism are, um, a person might object, well, I've never heard that taught at Parkside. Why are we even talking about that issue? Right? I'm not trying to contrast, I'm not trying to critique what has traditionally been taught at Parkside. I'm talking about covenant theology in its basic tenets and, and dispensationalism in its basic tenets. And there may be aspects of each of those that have been taught and you've come to understand uh, variously in the history of our church here or maybe in your own church or in other contexts, right? So again, I'm not talking about people. I'm not talking about uh, particular histories or our church's history or anything like that. What I'm, what I'm seeking to do is compare and contrast two ways of reading Scripture, right? And so we want to understand that this is an idea that we are looking at. We ought to be able to examine uh, ideas and see whether they are biblical, regardless of who might hold them or whether you might have heard them taught before or not, okay? We have to be able to examine ideas in light of that, okay? So we are, are we clear on those basic caveats? All right. So um, my, my, I have a, a tendency, I, I live in the world of ideas, and I think in terms of idea, and so I can, I can say things that can, be, uh, that can really sound critical of a person, and I don't mean to say anything critical of any person. I'm, I'm trying to think in terms of ideas, talk in terms of ideas, okay? That's, that's my goal. Um, we will see how, how well that works out, okay? Hopefully, I, and I think it, it will work out just fine, Okay? All right, so as we're talking about these two basic ideas, um, we're, we're talking about dispensationalism. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some charts, <laughs> and when you, do, when you talk about dispensationalism, it helps to lay out some charts, and so maybe you don't even know how, know how to spell the word. I know better than to try and talk and write at the same time. I proved that this morning that I cannot do that. All right, dispensationalism. Okay, that's on the one hand, and of course we've been talking about covenant theology. All right, and so we'll see some con contrasts between those two uh, right here. Okay, and really when we talk about um, dispensationalism, particularly, and and we see this play out in the same way in covenant theology, we're talking about the timeline of history, all right? So I'm going to try and um, draw the timeline of history. So here we've got creation, right? And then we've got Adam right off the bat, and Adam uh, falls into sin. And uh, so that's a, that's a new epoch, a new era in our timeline when we think about Adam falling into sin. Uh, and there are other things that develop, right? We, we know that Noah comes on the scene, uh, and so you, you've got Noah, and this is not to scale, obviously. And then Abraham comes on the scene, you've got Abraham. And then Moses comes on the scene, you've got Moses. And then David comes on the scene, right? And then Christ comes on the scene, okay? 
And so if we're looking at history, this is creation, and this is going forward in time, right? Um, and so what we're discussing when we're talking about these two uh, uh, systems, we're trying to understand how God has been working through the course of time and how we are to understand it. What has God been doing through the course of time? And so uh, this will be helpful in, in contrasting these two systems. There, um, there are uh, a number of different dispensations. This is a biblical word, dispensation. Uh, it's an economy. It's a way things are governed. It's a biblical word. Um, and, but dispensationalism sees that God has been at work differently in different dispensations in time. One, two, three, four, five, six, and then we've got a millennium there, right? I think that's right. Could be wrong. The number, the number is different. There's a slight, there, there are different ways of looking at this, but the main point is that in dispensationalism, you see that God has been working differently throughout history, right? For example, uh, this first dispensation would be perhaps the dispensation of innocency, right? And so that's here. That is the time pre-fall. Adam and Eve were on the scene, innocent. Sin had not entered the picture, and God dealt with them in one particular way. So that would be a dispensation. Well, then Genesis 3, 6, Genesis 3, 7 happens, and all of a sudden, sin enters the picture, and the, and the whole situation changes, right? And so here we would have a dispensation perhaps called uh, dispensation of conscience, right? So we don't have law given yet, but we have people operating based on the conscience. That's, uh, this is Seth and following all that um, uh, through that era, and so you have dispensation. God is dealing differently in this time period than He was before because here, Sin had not entered the picture in this first one. Now sin has. They're not in a state of innocency anymore. They're, they're in a different state. God is dealing differently with them. They have very little revelation, um, uh, etc. So you have this dispensation of conscience. Then Noah comes on the scene. And what are uh, the, the, the memorable aspect, uh, perhaps, of the Noahic covenant is um, the giving of government that there is a civil government being established, right? And so uh, there it, it is where it talked about um, you're to do justice when, when someone murders somebody, that person ought to be put to death, right? There's this idea of government, right? So you've got civil government, right? And then uh, comes Abraham and promises are given. And so you've got the, the time of the patriarchs. Now, what's, what's important about all of this? I could, I could keep spelling out, and, and I will, but the main thing for us to remember is not the name for each one. The dispensationalists might dif- disagree on that, not a big deal. Uh, the, the main point for us to remember is that in their reading, God was dealing differently with mankind in these different dispensations. He was dealing differently with them in each of these uh, different dispensations. So you have uh, the time of the patriarchs up through the Mosaic Law. Right? And so the law comes. Did things change with the law? Well, of course. Right? And so the law comes on the scene, and God begins to deal uh, based upon the uh, Mosaic law, 
I, I added David. I didn't need to add David here. Mosaic law carries up through the time of Christ. So God's dealing in a particular way. That's how they're seeing it um, in that time period uh, based upon the Mosaic law, right? And then, of course, uh, Christ comes on the scene. Uh, Christ lives. He dies. He's raised. He goes back to be with the Father. And now God is dealing in a different way. We are in a time of grace. This is what we call the church age. God is dealing differently. This is what dispensationalists are, are seeing, is that, is that God deals differently in each, each of these different ages, and we get to ours, and, and this is the dispensation of grace, and then ultimately you will have the millennium. Right? The, the millennium uh, period will come in the future. And so uh, in that way, um, in that general number, sometimes there are different um, divisions and names and stuff like that, which doesn't really matter. That's not the point. But the, their point in what they're saying is that God deals differently in each of these different periods. And so that's why, for example, since we live in the church age, we live in the time of grace, are we in the time under the Mosaic law? In the dispensational understanding, we are clearly not in that time. And the way it shows itself very often is that, uh, for example, the, the Ten Commandments themselves, since they are part of this dispensation, are not part of this dispensation. And so the Ten Commandments are not binding upon you and me unless they are repeated in the New Testament teaching, in which case now they're not part of this Mosaic law system. They're part of the church age and the church's teaching. And therefore, when, when a, one of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament, therefore it is applicable to you. But had it not been repeated it would not be applicable to you, right? And so very often you see this particularly with the, uh, with the commandment about the Sabbath. It's not uh, repeated in the same way in the New Testament, and therefore it's not binding upon us, right? And so you'll see that very, uh, very often in dispensational circles, that there's a Sabbath principle, there's that kind of concept, but there's not, um, since it is not repeated in this dispensation, Therefore, it's not applicable to us. It's a part of the law, and we are not under law. Okay, that's what, that's what uh, they understand that to mean. We are not in this system anymore. We are now in this dispensation. Okay? And so, uh, more could be said on that. Of course, more could be said on that. And many of us have, have been raised with this, and, and there's a lot of insight to a lot of this. That God has uh, dealt differently in different ways. That there are different levels of uh, understanding. Different amounts of um, revelation has been given at different points, right? And so we can see that uh, there is some wisdom in seeing and in, 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 in thinking about different points in, in history. What did those people know and what had been revealed to them? We need to think in those terms, okay? But the basis of the dispensational model is this dividing up of how God works in different times. And at the, at the conclusion of each of these dispensations, it comes to a close. And now God is working in a new way. And at the end of that, it comes to a close. And now God is working in a new way, etc. Right? And so you see that it comes to an end. It comes to an end. It comes to an end that there are uh, these different dispensations where God has been working in these different ways. Okay? 
Um, all right, so that's, that, that will give us a basis uh, for understanding uh, the, the, the topic or the understanding of dispensationalism. Any questions at this point? Yeah. So, different dispensations, is there different salvation truths during the different dispensations? So the vast majority of dispensationalists would say no, salvation is... Um, there, there aren't different, different ways of salvation in the different time periods. There, there, there was some confusing language in Schofield's uh, study Bible, the first one, that seemed possibly to indicate that. Um, and then I think it was changed later. And, of course, the vast, vast majority of dispensationalists would deny that outright. Uh, there are different ways of being saved. For example, I think what you're getting at is, was, it, was a person saved by keeping the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, whereas now they're saved by faith in Christ? The vast, vast majority of dispensationalists would deny that and, and say that no, salvation is, is, is by one way. But, but the, those who argue and, and bring up that point can point to the Schofield Reference Bible and some notes in there, and it's like, well, did he word it sloppily? Did he really mean it? I don't know. Most don't believe it. Any other questions on the topic before we move on? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, there, there would be... They, 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 were, <laughs> they were saved by, uh, f- by faith as presented under their given dispensation. So yes, it's ultimately pointing to Christ, but there seems to be, um, it can be pretty, pretty distant. What did Abraham know, for example, under the time, uh, under the time of the patriarchs? And so what, what ends up happening is in the dispensational model, it seems like there's a little bit of more, more fuzzy understanding of the Messiah to come. Uh, it's, not, it's not super clear. So they're, they're, they're believing the promises of God as given in this particular dispensation. And thus they are saved by believing the promises of God, though, though they're um, in, in bare outline form, perhaps, or some hints given or whatnot. But they believe the promises of God as they've been presented in their dispensation. Okay. And so you can see, you can see that I'm, I'm struggling not to use the, the same wording. I, I, because in the covenant theology model, they're saved by the faith in the Messiah to come. Very clearly, very clearly. But here there's, there's more of a conversation on that topic, and I think it does muddy the waters. I think that's an insightful question. It does muddy the waters. And I've heard, um, I've heard dispensationalists kind of off the cuff not, not teaching a class on this and saying um, they're saved, you know, Old Testament saints are saved by different means, but sort of off the cuff, it's muddy enough that they, it comes off sounding like there was a different way of salvation. So, so all that to say, it's, it's a little bit muddy. There, I, I believe what they teach is that an Old Testament saint was saved by believing the promises of God as given in that dispensation. Okay. All right. So that is uh, dispensationalism. Now, we've talked about covenant theology, and um, it's a, it's, it will take less time to draw. But if you, if you recall, we had... Um, I'm going to use this same section here, so it's going to be a little bit tight. Um, 
But if you remember, what was the covenant given that, that was uh, the intra-Trinitarian pre-temporal covenant, the one that no one else was there for except Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What, what have we called that covenant? Covenant of redemption, right? So the covenant of redemption, right? So that's pre-temporal. That's before creation. This is the point of creation right here, right? Now, Adam comes on the scene. God, God creates. He creates Adam, and He creates Adam under this particular covenant that we've called the covenant of works, right? So with Adam, covenant of works, right? I need to do a better job. All right, so pre-temporal. We've got the covenant of redemption, right? And then Adam comes on the scene, and we've got the covenant of works. He fails that covenant. The nature of that covenant was um, do this and live. Obey, and you will have life. You and all your posterity will have life. He breaks that covenant, okay? And then what, what, what covenant... Uh, comes immediately after it in the very same chapter as the breaking of the covenant of works, we read about what? The covenant of grace, right? Covenant of grace, covenant of works, all flowing out of this covenant of redemption, right? Now, the covenant of works, and here's the difference. These are both given right back in here, in this early, early time, Genesis, Genesis uh, uh, 2, Genesis 3, right? The covenant of works continues, not as a means of salvation, but in its consequences for all of those who were born under the covenant of works. We who were born in Adam, Romans chapter 5, are born in sin. Why? We've already sinned. We were just born. We've already sinned because we sinned in Adam. He's our federal head. And so the consequences of it continue. The covenant of works continues, but only the consequences of it. The covenant of grace was given very, very shortly after, and it continues. Right? So you see there's a basic difference. One is simplicity. And the other is that there is continuity throughout Scripture. So when you're reading here in Romans 5, you will read about the covenant of works. Not as some distant past, yeah, do you remember that historical thing that happened thousands of years ago? Covenant of works, people are still born under it, though it's broken, and they inherit the consequences of it, which is death. That's why we're born dead in our trespasses and sins and need to be made alive by means of the covenant of grace. So there is continuity. So you see these two things continuing. So you can see there's a, there's a vast difference. Even the imagery, as poorly as I've drawn that, you can see there's a big difference between the dividing up, seeing the dispensations, right, and the dividing up versus these two covenants that are ongoing, right? They continue throughout Scripture. So you can see there's, there's a dividing up, and then there is this continuity uh, with the covenant theology talking about covenant of works and covenant of grace. Now that shows itself not just in my little artwork here, 
But it shows itself in many, many ways in how to read Scripture. You will see those, those different things. It's been commented to me by dispensationalists that, well, dispensational or dispensation is a biblical uh, word, and it is a biblical word. Well, so is covenant, right? But they have different concepts in mind. The way the dispensational uses it is used in this way that there is a a dispensation, uh, an economy, a way God works that then changes. And we enter a new economy and a new way of God working. And He works that way, and then that changes, and we enter a new economy, etc., etc., throughout Scripture, right? So there seems to be kind of a chopping up of, uh, of Scripture in that sense. And so we're going to see this come into play um, as we continue on our discussion. But that's the biggest most readily evident difference between the two is are we talking about something ongoing or are we talking about something that is, uh, seems to be divided up in that way, okay? That's a, a, a major difference between those two, okay? And so I think that's going to help us as we, as we think about these two topics. Yes, Rick. Yeah. And which one is the newer explanation? Yes. Uh, that's an excellent question. So, um, covenant theology really came into maturity um, around the time, shortly after the time of Calvin. So, 16th century, into the 17th century, it really began to flourish and be developed more fully. Though you can see elements of covenantal language talking about covenant of redemption, covenant of grace, all the way back to the church fathers. You can see evidence of that. Dispensationalism uh, really is identified with John Nelson Darby in 1830 is when it was first really formulated. And you can see elements of this sort of dividing up concept in earlier church history as well, but it wasn't formulated in the fashion uh, that it is now, um, and not even really in the, in the way it is now because um, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since 1830. But it was 1830 when, when uh, John Nelson Darby put, put that together. What was that name again? John Nelson Darby. And so um, both of them have certain, certain roots uh, historically, personally. I, and, and this is from, you know, 16th, 17th century. This is from 19th century, uh, though there are elements that, that precede that. Um, and a lot of work has been done on that topic. Uh, about the historicity of either one or the other. And Ligon Duncan, uh, I believe his, his Ph.D. dissertation was on this topic uh, of looking uh, for the roots of covenant theology in the church fathers. Now, he's not published it. I've not read it. I've heard him give talks on it that's, that, are, that are helpful. Mike. So, so excellent Right. So, so what happens is you have the cross that happens at the exact same point right here midway through, let's say midway, I don't know, right? Somewhere along the line the cross happens. But um, I use the illustration of the, all of my kids waiting in line uh, at, the, at the ice cream stand, right? And so these, these saints back here in the, in the covenant theology perspective were looking forward, trusting by means of this covenant of grace that God that God was going to send the one who was going to fulfill 
this covenant and give them the rewards for that. But he's to come. He's in the future. He's to come. And so they're, the, they're, the, they're you know, those of my kids who are in line ahead of me pointing back to dad and saying, he's going to pay. He's going to pay. Whereas we come on the scene after the fact and we point ahead to him having already paid, right? And so the, the cross doesn't happen until later on, but, but the effect of it is infinite. And you can see this play out in Paul's discussion in, in Romans chapter 3 particularly about how um, that payment uh, for sin needed to be made to, to justify God as it were so that he wouldn't just keep, you know, it's almost as if he's, he's covering sin, he's covering sin. How long can that go on? The payment had to be made, right? But he had covered it already. But the payment is made in the cross, uh, uh, justifying God in that, in that sense. Romans chapter 3. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yes. That is an excellent transition for us. Good job. <laughs> that is excellent. Very, very good. All right. So I'm, I'm teasing you, but it really is an ideal transition for us to talk about. Um... <laughs> well, good job, Simi. The brain, brains of the operation there. <laughs> All right. So if you want to see my beautiful artwork, I can spin it around again in the future. But, um, but basically, what are, what, what are the main causes of the differences? There are, there are historical things that Darby was dealing with. In, uh, he was dissatisfied with certain aspects of the church and, and things like that um, historically. But when we look at what are the causes of the differences, why the two different views where for dispensationalism you see a, a breaking up, a separation it seems like, discontinuity versus covenant theology you see a great continuity. There are three main questions that are being answered different ways that bring about these differences in, uh, in these two systems, all right? We get different answers to these questions. Uh, the first question is, what is the relationship between Israel and the church? What is the relationship between Israel and the church? In the dispensational model, they see a sharp distinction between the two. And in, in some of their expression, they will even talk about there their being um, almost like two peoples of God, Israel and the church. And, and God has a different program for each of those two different peoples. And so um, even when you think about the history of the church, God had been in the Old Testament working with, with Israel, working with Israel, working with Israel. Christ comes on the scene. They reject their Messiah. Israel rejects their Messiah right, and he is crucified, then God pauses, as it were, his work with Israel, and he begins to work with Gentiles like you and me. He begins to work with the church. And so you had Israel pause. God was focusing mainly on, the, on, on his people Israel, pause, and then you have the church enter the scene at Pentecost. So the church is born definitively in the dispensational model in Acts chapter 2, that's when the church, church is born. That's when it begins and it continues on until 
uh, you have the church raptured off the scene and you enter the millennial time and all of that stuff at the end where God goes back to work, finishing up essentially what he started with uh, the nation of Israel. So there is a strong distinction in the dispensational model between Israel and the church. Whereas in covenant theology, you have a much greater understanding of continuity between Israel and the church. That Israel was uh, the, 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 the giving, they, they were the people that God was working with in the Old Testament. Some of them were regenerate, some were not. Think of Saul, uh, think of David, right? Or, or much worse guys than Saul, right? But there were those who were regenerate, those who were not. But within, within the broader nation of Israel, if that's the broader nation of Israel, some of whom are uh, unbelievers, there is a core called a remnant. The remnant are believers. Okay? The remnant are believers. What happens at the cross in the, in the basic understanding of covenant theology is that God is no longer concerned about the external core or the, the, the external portion. He begins to work more and more with that remnant and actually opens up the remnant to include Gentiles as well. So that we are included in to Israel. So we're called Israel in the New Testament. Promises made to Israel are applied in the church. Uh, you see that Gentiles are included in so that this is what we might call true Israel. We are the remnant. It's just that God is no longer working with uh, uh, tribes, uh, you know, and, and uh, the system that we see in the Old Covenant. He has now opened up that remnant so that it's not, it, it was never exclusively Jewish, by the way. Uh, there, there, were, there were others who were included in that, but it's opened up to include you and me as well. Jews, Jews and Gentiles are this remnant, the Israel of God, okay? That sometimes is called replacement theology, but I don't see how that could be called replacement theology. Uh, uh, I've never heard a covenant theologian call it replacement theology. It's usually um, by a dispensationalist who, who probably misunderstands what's going on. In their mind, they're thinking that uh, the church has replaced Israel as God's people. It used to be Israel, now it's the church. And that's not what, that's not what covenant theology teaches. Covenant theology recognizes that there were those who were unbelievers in uh, Old Testament Israel, but they were not true Israel, according to Paul's language, in, uh, in Romans particularly, and, and in, and in uh, uh, Galatians as well. But there's this remnant, they are true Israel, but now in the new covenant time, that remnant is opened up to allow for you and me entry also, and we are the true Israel. Not because we have replaced anyone else at all, but because that core of the remnant has been opened to expand you and me as well. Okay? And so this question of the relationship between Israel and the church is a primary primary uh, driver of distinctions within doctrine in, uh, in between these two systems, okay? That's one of them, the relationship between Israel and the church. The second question is, how should the Bible, especially the prophecies in the Bible, be interpreted, literally or otherwise? And so, uh, we talk about literal interpretation. Okay. 
literal interpretation. Now, that especially is applicable when it comes to prophecies. For the, for the dispensationalists, the answer to this one is, yes, we interpret the Bible literally everywhere we can. And, and by that, we mean normally. I'm reading, I have uh, Charles Ryrie's um, dispensationalism right here, and he, and he makes a point, and I just read something by uh, Dr. Urban Lutzer, who was our pastor at the Moody Church. Moody Church was our sending church in Chicago. Um, uh, we love Dr. Lutzer. And his, an article he uh, wrote, commented on that, that, we, that by literal interpretation, we mean normal interpretation. He's not, he's, but, but, but the focus is on it being literal as often as you can. Everywhere that you can. Of course, there are figures of speech. Of course, there are, you know, sometimes there's imagery or other things like that. Um, but th- there's, a, there's a huge focus on literal interpretation. And the covenant theologian, well, I want to ask, who says that's how we ought to interpret it? Show me a verse, literally, that says I'm supposed to interpret the Bible literally. Now, why, why do I ask that question? Why, why do I look at it that way? Well, this, this has a lot to do with how I uh, warmed up to the idea of covenant theology. When I was working through doing a lot of study of how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, if you do a study on that, and I've, I've wanted to teach a Sunday school class on this for 10 years, uh, it would be a big class, it'd be hard to do, uh, but it would be great impact. What you see is when you look at how the New Testament authors in quoting Old Testament prophecy and saying this is fulfilled, how often that is not literal. Now, you do have literal interpretations, uh, literal prophecies given. Um, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Straight up, not a big deal. You have that. But you have others that are a little more confusing and you think, well, wait a minute. Uh, When Matthew said of Jesus... Because Jesus had and his family had fled down into Egypt. And Matthew said this was to fulfill the prophet who said, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Matthew chapter 2. Out of Egypt I've called my son. And you're like, oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know about that, that messianic prophecy. And you go back to Hosea and you're reading the passage in Hosea. And it's not even in prophetic form. And it's talking about the nation of Israel being brought out of Egypt in the Exodus. And you're thinking, how can Matthew look at that passage and interpret it that way if literal interpretation ought to govern all of our interpretation? And we looked at passage after passage after passage where um, the New Testament writer is saying, remember that prophecy? It's fulfilled in this. And you're looking and saying, that's not literal. And so when I ask the question, Uh, when I make the request, show me a verse that says I am to interpret literally, I ask that for a reason, and that's because I do see many verses where the New Testament writers don't follow that rule. And I, as an interpreter of Scripture, want to learn from the New Testament writers, not from some abstract concept that tells me I must interpret the Bible literally. Okay? Now, I... You've sat under my preaching, you've heard me teach, you've heard me preach, I read the Bible literally, right? I don't, I don't throw that out, I don't allegorize or any of those things, but what I do is observe that in the mind of the New Testament writer, God has been at work accomplishing a great work that is consistent throughout history, the redemption of the elect in 
the Messiah. He's been accomplishing that the whole time, and he's been speaking of those things. And when I see continuity between Old Testament and New Testament, when I see that the New Testament writers were looking back and saying, this language was talking about Jesus, or this language was talking about the church, though they're not interpreting literally, I want to learn from them. And that, for me, was a huge, huge um, um, motivator for me, right? The last one, and there's more to be said on, on, on all of these, and I'm happy to say more on it. For the sake of time, we'll move on. So, I believe in literal interpretation of the Bible, but I also believe that there is this overarching redemptive theme that I must also consider in interpreting the Bible. So, if uh, when in our doctrinal statement says, uh, we teach the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture. I'm with that if I can ask the question, do, do you mean to include redemptive work, redemptive interpretation? Or do you mean to exclude redemptive interpretation? If, if we want to exclude it, I'm not for that. Because I think the New Testament writers again and again demonstrate that they interpreted the Bible redemptively. They saw God working this this grand uh, history of redemption that culminated in Christ and we bear the fruits of it and all that kind of stuff and they interpret the Bible according to that which leads to some different interpretations than merely a literal grammatical historical interpretation okay third question what is the overarching purpose of the Bible We may be a little bit late tonight, hopefully not too late. What is the overarching purpose of the Bible? For the dispensationalist, the answer to that is the glory of God, period. The glory of God. I don't have any problem with that answer as far as it goes. The glory of God is the reason we exist. The glory of God is the the greatest of all purposes. My, my, my uh, exception that I take with that answer is that it's not specific enough to Scripture. And here's, here's why I ask this. So uh, turn your Bibles to, to uh, Psalm 19. I don't even have to read very far, do I? Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And the, and the, the chapter goes on, talking about how all of creation points to, pours out speech, is preaching about the glory of God. We see that over and over and over again, and, and that is a very high purpose. But here, hear me carefully. We don't need the Bible for that. God will be glorified in those ways without Scripture because we know that by general revelation that is common to everyone who interacts with the world, that that God is there and everyone knows it. Everyone knows He is glorious, He is powerful, and He is wise. Read Romans chapter 1. We don't need the Bible to point us to the glory of God. So I'm not saying that the glory of God is 
uh, is uh, that there's something higher than the glory of God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if, if the Bible never existed, God would yet be glorified. That's what, that's what Psalm 19 and uh, verses 1 and following is talking about. God will be glorified, period. Why do we need the Bible? Jesus. You can only learn about redemption in the Bible. You're not going to learn about redemption by looking at a tree. Even a tree that might be shaped like a cross is not going to tip you off to the fact that our triune God has been offended by our sin and must be appeased, etc., etc., and Christ has done that. Only in the Bible are you going to find that. And so, so the answer that the dispensationalist gives is a good answer so far as it goes, but it's inadequate because it's not a full enough answer, not because it's too high or not because it's not high enough. We, we believe the glory of God is the greatest thing there is, but the Bible reveals the glory of God in the redemption of sinners in Christ. And that's the purpose of the Bible. That's the overarching purpose. It's not... It's not the, the, the glory of God without any other reference. God will be glorified, period. And if the Bible never existed, He would be glorified. But what would happen if the Bible never existed is you and I would never be saved. So the purpose of the Bible is the glory of God in redemption in Christ. And so we can... We, we see things very differently. We see uh, the, the play out of all of history differently. Because of this, when we read in Genesis, we know that it's, this is the history of redemption and something is going on, a part of that big history, a part of that big um, uh, uh, tapestry that's being woven together. And we see those themes and threads that play all the way through history and, and, and come to, to culmination, to fruition in Christ Himself, and we see them being woven from the very beginning because there is, there is essentially a unity of Scripture, not essentially a disunity of Scripture. What does it matter? I hope you can see that it matters a ton. That's right. We would never know about salvation if it weren't for God revealing it to us in His Word. We wouldn't know about the glory of God in redemption in Christ unless He had revealed to us in His Word, Christ who redeems us. And so when we talk about the purpose of God in the Bible, it is, it is not a higher purpose than, than the glory of God, but it is the glory of God specifically as revealed in, uh, as brought to us in the redemption that is ours in Christ. And you see this play out just to finish out the psalm. I'm, I'm not going to read, but it goes on and on. Uh, a day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. And it continues like that, talking about uh, general revelation and, and it pointing to God's glory. And then you get to verse 7. And the tone changes. The, 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 not really the tone. The, the subject matter changes. There's more specificity. There's a point put to it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now all of a sudden you've got redemption entering in. You've got the fact of our need for revival. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, and on and on. The, 
the first six verses are about general revelation and the glory that they give to God, the f- starting in verse 7 and following, we see it brought right down to the area of redemption. God's Word being given, God's Word being spoken, His law, His precepts, His commands, His Word connected with our redemption. And so the covenant theologian sees a different purpose for all of Scripture. So what are the consequences of this in our remaining time? Why does, it, why does, why does all of this matter to us? Why do our different answers to these questions matter? First of all, it affects how we read and interpret the Bible. Relatively big deal. How we read and interpret the Bible. Okay, that's major understatement. And this, I, I could say more, but I'm not going to inter- it, 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 it affects how we read, how we interpret the Bible. And all of us read and interpret the Bible, right? And, and for me as a preacher, this is a constant question on my mind that I deal with every single time I open the Word to read it, to study it, to preach it. These questions, because they are that important to the things that we preach and teach. Secondly, it affects how we view the Old Testament for New Testament believers. Perhaps you've noticed that in some contexts, in some dispensational context, if there is Old Testament preaching, there are basically two kinds of, two kinds of Old Testament preaching. One is looking at Messianic Psalms or, or Messianic prophecies, talking directly, specifically, verbatim, basically, about Christ. But other than that, when you read somewhere else in the Old Testament, you read a story and you come up with kind of a moral. Because it's not directly applicable in the dispensational mind. It's not directly applicable in the life of the church. Why? Because we're not under law, but under grace. We're in a different time frame, right? And so what it does is it kind of, it kind of makes the Old Testament sort of a mystery. It, it keeps it distant from us. We, we might preach it, but when we preach it, we're, we're, we're kind of doing, um, we're, we're looking for how we can learn morals from the story. How much of that preaching have you heard? It affects how we view the Old Testament for New Testament believers. In the covenant theology mindset, the New, the New Testament believer looks on the Old Testament as our book. It's about us. It's about our Messiah. It's about the redemption that was brought to us. It's, it's, it's applicable to us in a, in a much more direct way. And so we're preaching in Genesis for however many years we <laughs> stay in Genesis. Number three, why does it matter? What, what are the consequences? Thirdly, it impacts how we view the church and the value we place on it. See, there, there's, a, there's an issue that's inherent in, in dispensationalism that many seek to, many dispensation, probably maybe even most dispensationalists perhaps seek to overcome this. But it is inherent in the system that the church is one of two peoples of God and it's really kind of the afterthought. God's primary care in the dispensational understanding, His, His, His first love, as it were, is Israel. But they disobeyed, and so He moved on, and He began to work with us. And when the time is right, He will move us out of the way, and He will go back to work with them. 
When you see, however, that all of Scripture has been the presentation and development of God's redemption of sinners like you and me, whether they're Jew or whether they're Gentile, when you see that that is the whole purpose, you see that the church is the only game in town. This is where God has been invested, that we are the recipients of God's promises, God's blessings, and they are bound up in us. And we're not the, the younger brother or, uh, or something like that that kind of gets the leftovers and Israel gets the, gets the main emphasis and the, and the real love. And yeah, we're included too. And, and when God just includes us in His love, that's a very great thing. Yes, it is. It would be. But that is not the picture of Scripture. He has placed His love on us in Christ. We have been, we have been placed into the church and that church is the body of the bride of Christ. It's not second best. It's not and also ran. The church is where it's at. And so it, it raises our view, our value of the church itself. And then fourthly, and perhaps most noticeably, it impacts how we view eschatology. Now you'll notice that one, I didn't do number four uh, or number zero as... Um, what about eschatology? And that's because eschatology for the dispensational model is inherent in the system. There is a given eschatology. There might be some wiggle room in regard to rapture, tribulation, and what order they happen and some things like that. But other than that, there's no wiggle room eschatologically when we talk about the end times. What's going to happen? There's, there's a little bit of debate right there, but the rest of it is set in a, uh, a premillennial dispensational view of eschatology. It's, it's inherent in the system itself. And so when you challenge the system, you're challenging the eschatology. Now, what eschatology did I lay out here? None. And that was on purpose. That's because in covenant theology, you can find representatives who believe in a form of premillennialism. Uh, premillennialism. So this, this, the millennium, uh, this is when Christ returns. Okay? In the, in the dispensational model, Christ returns and sets up the millennium. Okay? That's a non-negotiable in dispensationalism. Within covenant theology, you have people who believe in a form of premillennialism called historic premillennialism, which is, which is very different, but you have Christ returning and setting up a millennium, etc. So you have historic premillennialism. Within covenant theology, you have those who believe in what is called amillennialism, which, which teaches basically that all of this time, from now until the return of Christ, they, they don't view the return of Christ setting up the millennium. They see this is the millennium. The period of time between the cross and the return of Christ is the millennium. That is the age we're in right now. That's all millennialism. And you see, you see the Spirit of God advancing in wondrous ways uh, and, and the church going forth. And you see the church suffering and suffering terribly during this time. But that's all millennialism, right? So it's, it's called ah. The ah means there's no millennium, meaning it's not just a thousand years, and it might stretch on for ten. Uh, but, it's, but it's that period where we're seeing the inbreaking of the kingdom right now already. So there are representatives, uh, covenant theologians, who, who are amillennial. 
and there are covenant theologians who are post-millennial, those who believe that, that there are events that will happen in history that will, um, that will bring about a great golden age for the church uh, in this era, and that will be the beginning of the millennium, and that will extend on for a thousand or so years, at the end of which Christ will return. So post-millennium. His return is post-millennium, comes after the millennium. So there are covenant theologians who hold those different views. So the eschatology is not an essential component of the covenant the uh, theological structure like it is for dispensationalism. So when you, when you disagree with or when you argue with or when you, when, you, when you contradict dispensationalism, you are necessarily contradicting eschatology. And it becomes about eschatology very often when the covenant theologian is thinking, well, I do have views on eschatology, but that's not really the point. These other things are the point. But for the dispensationalists, they're, they're recognizing, well, that means some very definite things about eschatology. And so uh, it impacts how we view eschatology. All right. So again, I was, I was uh, trained. Two of the three schools I went to trained me in this system. And the one, uh, the third one I went to trained me in, in this system. The, we were sent out to Russia by the Moody Church. Moody Church is a dispensational church. Parkside historically has been a dispensational church. My entire, uh, a huge chunk of my Christian life, this has been the world that I've lived in. And so in, in making the critique of this system, I would remind you that I am not critiquing the individuals who hold to that system. I am not saying that someone is uh, less faithful to Christ because they are a dispensationalist. I'm not saying that they uh, love Christ less, that they um, don't love God's Word, that they are not good Christians, they, that they are not good evangelists, that they are not... I'm not saying anything about the individual who holds the view. I'm examining the view and I'm saying, this doesn't seem to be what I read in Scripture. I see this emphasis on continuity. And when I answer these questions on the back of the board there, I see that they must be answered differently than dispensationalism answers them. And so this, this, uh, this is an important topic for us who are seeking to understand the Bible, to seeking to understand uh, God's Word and how it is to be understood and how it is to be applied to our lives. And particularly as we're studying to teach, to teach our children or to uh, teach in a, in a connect group context or in any other context or even just studying for ourselves, these are important questions, important things for us to wrestle with. And so we want to wrestle with them well. In our context, we want to wrestle with them graciously because uh, people represent these. There are people in our lives that we love who are dispensationalists. There are people in our lives we love who are covenant theologians. So we want to be gracious, but we want to be biblical. And so we want to tackle those two things together. So I've, I've already borrowed your time long enough. Thank you. Um, so where does Revelation fit? Where does Revelation fit? Rick. 
<clears throat> I'm not sure I can do it quickly, but, I, but I'll try. So you, you, all, you all are probably familiar with how, dis, how a dispensationalist reads uh, Revelation, that Revelation is a future book. It's talking about the future. And, um, and so you have, uh, you have the church raptured, raptured off the scene, I think, at the end of chapter 4. And, and then, so it's, it's a future book. It's talking mostly about um, tribulation and, and things like that. Um, covenant theology itself doesn't have a particular reading of Revelation. But I, but, but I will say that if you put, if you answer these questions the way covenant theology answers them, you will read Revelation differently. You'll read it very differently because you will see that there's a great continuity, not identity between Israel and church, but continuity. You will see that, that we don't only interpret the Bible literally, that there are times when we are led by the very writers of New Testament Scripture to interpret, uh, to interpret Old Testament prophecies in light of Christ, not only literally. And as we see the purpose, the grand purpose of, of the Bible being wrapped up in uh, the glory of God and the redemption of man uh, by Christ, you'll read Revelation very differently. I'm going to pray now before Mike asks the question. <laughs> Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word, and we ask, Father, that you would help us by your spirit to submit ourselves to your word. Pray that you would help us come before you, recognizing that you know all things and we are so ignorant. We need you and your communication to us from your word, and so help us as we seek to wrestle with these big issues. Help us to be gracious, humble, but committed to your word. Help us to learn from your word how you would have us interpret it, understand it, preach it, believe it, obey it. Father, we don't want to um, hold ourselves against someone else, against some other Christian. That's not the point. We want to understand your word as we ought to. And so we pray that you would help your church to do that. Help us here at Parkside to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.